I'll be reading uh, Revelation 1, 5 through 8. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from the sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he who is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It is time. Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. We are starting a new sermon series today on the book of Revelation. And as we do every time we start a new series, let me remind you, there are Discovery Bible Study bookmarks out in the lobby. I would encourage you to pick up one of those on your way out today. They're also online on our website. This is a great way just to track and read along with the sermon series, but more than that, it's an opportunity for you to sit down with others, friends, family, sit down and open up the Word of God together and let the Spirit of God speak to you and through you as you encourage each other and grow together. And so I would encourage you to grab one of those bookmarks so that you can walk along with the sermon series and open up the Word of God. And may God bless you as you encourage others to be disciples. That's our, that's our mission, to make disciples to be disciples and to make disciples. And there are a number of ways to do that. And I hope that you are actively involved in the mission of God here at the Edmund Church of Christ. We're calling this series The Last Word. The Last Word. And it has a couple of meanings. Obviously, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. But more than that, the letter that is Revelation, and by the way, it's singular, Revelation, not Revelations, it's okay if you call it that, you know, go down to the Walmarts, <laughs> sometimes we say that. We like to pluralize stores, the Kroger's, J.C. Penney's. Did you know it's just J.C. Penney? But that's okay, you can call it Revelations if you want, it's just a revelation. But it is a letter of assurance and hope and encouragement. It is meant to be an encouragement to those who are living in difficult times and certainly that would include us. You see, it is the last word because no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens around us, there is one who has the final word. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25 reminds us that the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's good to know. That's good to know when we live in a world of so many conflicting messages it's hard to know what to trust what to believe what to know knowing that the word of the Lord endures forever is good for us to know because there is so much turmoil and tension in our world it's already been mentioned a couple of times Afghanistan Haiti things that are happening there but also in our own country and maybe sometimes in our own homes our own families there is so much chaos there is conflict <clears throat> and we need to know that the word of the Lord endures forever. 
that no matter what happens, God is still in control. Jesus is still the king of kings and that he has the last word on all of it. We need to know that. When's the last time you read Revelation? It's one of those strange reads, isn't it? It's an odd book. It's confusing, let's be honest. You come away from Revelation with more questions than you have answers. A lot of head scratchers. There are beasts, there are, there are dragons, there are scrolls, there are bowls, <laughs> there are plagues, there are promises. There's all these, this imagery and all of these signs and symbols. What do we make of all of that? Sometimes we think Revelation is this secret code, and if we can just unlock all of these symbols, all of these codes, we can predict what's going to happen in the future. That is not the purpose of Revelation. It is not a secret code to be cracked. It is a transformative message to be heard. Yes, Revelation is apocalyptic. In fact, that word revelation in Greek means apocalypse. And when we think about that, we think in Hollywood movie terms, don't we? We think about giant tidal waves and asteroids hitting the earth and all these things that we envision are going to happen at the end of the world. But in the first century, that word simply meant a revealing, an opening up, like you would open up a book or lift the lid off of a box or pull back a curtain. That's what that word means, apocalypse. And that's what we see throughout this letter, this book, Revelation. We see things opening up, the opening of scrolls, the opening of doors, heaven opening up. And every time something opens up, it's something we need to see. It's a message we need to hear. And what is that message? What is the overriding message of Revelation? Well, spoiler alert, I'm going, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. First sermon in the series, I'm going to give you the message, okay? Here it is. In this epic battle between good and evil, good is victorious. Jesus wins. That's the message. Jesus wins. There's a preview in chapter 11, verse 15. Look at this. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And get this. He will reign forever and ever. That is the message, that Jesus will reign forever and ever, that he supersedes anything in this world, that he is the king of all kings. You see, Jesus didn't remain on the cross. He didn't stay in that tomb. Satan is not going to have the final word, and evil will not overcome good. Jesus is alive, and he is victorious. Why is that important? I mean, it should go without saying, but let me just say it. Why is that important? Why is it important to know that Jesus wins, that his kingdom will reign? Because sometimes we get discouraged, don't we? Sometimes we look around us and we see what's going on in our world and we think, man, evil is really making inroads into our world, into our families, into our nations. Satan is really making progress and we get discouraged. We need to know that Jesus wins, that his kingdom reigns. But we also need to know this because we have to choose. The time is now for us to choose whose side are we going to be on? 
Whose side? Is it going to be Jesus' side or is it going to be someone, something else? Are we going to be with Jesus or without Jesus? You see, you have to make that choice. I have to make that choice. And we all know in this epic battle between good and evil that if good, in fact, does win out, that if Jesus is victorious, then we know that what we should choose, don't we? I mean, the choice should be easy. If you sit down to watch a game and you already know how it's going to end, then you know which team you should be for. (laughs) I choose Jesus. But you also need to know that choosing Jesus will demand something of you. You see, choosing Jesus means that you have to give some things up. Choosing Jesus means you must loosen your grip on the things of the world. It means living from your citizenship in heaven rather than from your citizenship on earth. Choosing Jesus demands complete allegiance to him. And for his original audience, for this original audience of Revelation, Christians scattered throughout these churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, they needed a word of encouragement. They needed some assurance You see, many of them, if not all of them, were under the strong arm of the Roman emperor, Nero. Or maybe if it was a little bit later, we're not for sure, but maybe if it was a little bit later, probably more likely, they were under Domitian. These were Roman emperors who did not like Christianity. So the culture of that day was marked by great political unrest, and religious tension, and even catastrophic events happening, earthquakes, volcanoes. Remember Vesuvius in 79? All of this is going on around them. And so this is a cultural and social and physical backdrop that produces incredible amounts of persecution for men and women who are trying to follow the way of Christ during this time. Life is difficult. They are being persecuted. Many of them were considered unpatriotic and irreligious, sometimes even called atheist because they wouldn't claim the Roman gods and idols as their own, and they wouldn't bow down and worship Caesar. Can you imagine disciples of Christ worshiping an earthly emperor? And yet, there was great pressure in the first century to compromise Christians had to make a choice. Whose side will it be? Will we go into the temple that is built and established for emperor worship and just grab a little incense, toss it on the altar, and simply proclaim, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord? Or will we refuse to do that? Will we live as citizens of heaven, the kingdom of God? Will we take up our cross and follow Jesus and cry out, Christos, Kyrios, Christ is Lord. You see, that's the choice they had to make, and it wasn't an easy choice because culture was imploding around them, and there was great pressure and great persecution. It's the same choice you and I have to make. You see, such a subversive position in that society often caused people to have identity crises. Who am I? What am I truly about? What is my life about? How am I supposed to live? Who are we collectively? And so with their culture pressing in on them, 
they were confronted with this question. Who are we? Whose side are we going to be on? It's the same question that we must answer today. Amid a different kind of pressure, but pressure nonetheless. Social pressure, political unrest, all kinds of things going on in our world, chaos and conflict. So many things trying to pull us away from our true identity and our true purpose. We are confronted with this same question. So how do you answer this question? That brings us to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Take note of that word, soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. See, in verse 3, it says this is a prophecy. And many times when we think of prophecy, we think we're predicting the future. And certainly, Revelation speaks of things that are going to happen in the future. But it is a message. It is a message that, did you catch that, was meant to be read aloud in the assemblies? You know, back then, they didn't have Scripture on their phones. Didn't have phones. They didn't have Scripture on paper. And so they relied on Scripture being read in the public assemblies. And when it was read, when Revelation was read, there probably wasn't as much head-scratching as we do because they knew all of those signs and symbols. They are directly rooted and grounded in many Old Testament images, as we will see moving forward. And so for them, this wasn't a, hey, what is this word and what is this symbol and what is this sign so we can predict the future? It was a message of encouragement and hope. It was a message about their identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. So this message is given by God through Christ, delivered from his messenger, his, his angel, to John. And here's the message. It begins in verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is, faithful, who is the faithful witness. That word is also martyr. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, who is the faithful martyr, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. I, I love the way you're reading through Revelation and all of a sudden worship just breaks out. It just goes right into this wellspring of worship and praise. It just can't help it. I think there's something for us there. Verse seven, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen, I and the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What a glorious, beautiful description of God. And so, if at least two of the big questions for this original audience and for us as we read 
this letter revelation, if, if at least two of those questions are, who am I and how am I supposed to live in these trying times, these difficult times with all of this political unrest and all this conflict and chaos, he begins to answer the question already, doesn't he, in chapter one. You see, he says, here's who you are. God has made us to be a kingdom and he has made us to be a priesthood of believers who do what? Who serve him. Every kingdom has a king and Jesus is the king of all kings. And we are part of that kingdom if we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But he says you're also made to be priests. A priesthood of believers, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. We no longer have to rely on the high priest as the Israelites of old did to have access to God. Now we have access to God through Christ. And priests had a job, didn't they? In the Old Testament covenant, in the Old Testament system, priests had a job. They were to serve God on behalf of the people. What does he say about us? We are made to be priests to do what? To serve him. That's who we are. Lest we ever be confused about who we are, he says right there, we are members of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We are priests made to serve him. Now, you have a lot of identities. You may be a wife, you may be a husband, you may be a mom, a dad, a son, a daughter, a brother, sister, uncle, aunt, grandparent. You may be a student, you may be an employee, you may be an engineer, you may be a teacher, you may be a plumber, you may be a retail worker. You may have a political affiliation. You may be a team member. You may be a board member. You probably have a lot of identities. But none of those identities should primarily shape your worldview. You see, we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And that identity must be the shaping force for all of those other identities. It's not the other way around. Being a citizen of the kingdom of God should shape everything we do. It should shape how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we see others. The decisions we make, the things we say, it should shape everything. It's not just a label we wear. That is an identity that transforms us and forms us. And as good as some of those other identities are, as good as some of those other roles are, here's the thing. They won't last. Earthbound identities will not endure. But notice what we are told about the nature of God in Revelation 1. Did you catch it? It's several times written in there. Verse 4. To him who is and was and who is to come. What does that mean? That means he is all things. Time cannot constrain our Lord. Verse 5, the ruler of the kings of the earth, whatever and whoever has power and influence in this life, they have to answer to Jesus, the king of all kings. Verse 8, the alpha, the omega, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the almighty. Verse 17, a little bit later in chapter 1, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Do you get the message there? Just in case you don't, at the end of Revelation, he says it again, verse 
6 and 7 of chapter 21. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You see, our Lord, God, is the Alpha, the Omega. That is the first letter and the last letter in the Greek alphabet. So anyone in this first century audience who heard that description, they knew immediately what it meant. It meant that God is everlasting, that whatever my feeble mind can conjure up as the beginning, God was there. And whatever I think of as the end, although there really is no end because eternity has no end, God is there. He is and he was and he is to come. And just like his word is eternal, he is eternal and everlasting. Now, can you say that about a nation? Could they say that about Rome, as powerful as Rome was? Could they say that about a Roman emperor, as powerful as they were? Or the Roman idols and gods? Or anything else that we pursue in this life and in this world? You can't say that. They are not everlasting. They are temporary. You see, the end for everything not eternal is coming, and it's coming soon. Did you catch that language? You'll hear that language again and again throughout Revelation. Verse 1, it's happening soon. Verse 3, the time is near. Revelation speaks about the end over and over, and it says it's, it's impending, it's coming. Now keep in mind, in God's economy, God's calendar, if you will, it's a little bit different than ours. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 90, verse 4, that to God a thousand years is like a day. I've had some days that seem like they lasted a thousand years. But for God, he's not bound by time. And so time is a relative term. It happening soon is a relative term. But the point is, there will be an end. Whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years, 10,000 years from now, there will be an end to everything that is around us, to all of this, to everything that we possess, every role that we fill, every identity that we take on, everything that we pour ourselves into and in turn try to fill ourselves up with to make us happy and fulfilled, it's all temporary. It will not last. But God, God and his word are eternal. They are everlasting. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And because he is eternal, because he is everlasting, because he is not temporary, he is the only one worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our worship, the only one. And so if bowing down to the Caesars of the world makes us patriotic, we choose to be unpatriotic. And if worshiping the idols of the prevailing culture around us makes us believers, then we choose to be atheists. And if aligning ourselves with the self-serving values of the world makes us normal, then we choose to be abnormal and eccentric. And if staking our claim and finding our identity in the things of this life makes us citizens of earth, then we choose to be citizens of heaven. You see, it's about identity. 
And once we get that right, we begin to live into that identity as members of the kingdom of God. And it shapes everything that we think and everything that we do. Well, remember we said that one of the questions is not only who am I, but how do I live in a world that is filled with such chaos, such unrest? How do we live that way? How do we live in a world like that? Well, we have the same choice that they had in the first century, don't we? We have the same choice that Christians in these seven churches throughout Asia Minor had. As citizens of God's kingdom, who are often caught in the middle of cultural and spiritual warfare, we can give up. We can throw in the towel. We can say, you know what? It's not worth it. Too much pressure, too much inconvenience. I'm too uncomfortable. I give up. Or we can compromise. We can try to live with with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world, and we can try to balance that. That's miserable. And it's not authentic. But we can get mad. We can get mad at the culture and just blast the culture. And in so doing, probably damage our witness to Jesus Christ to anyone who is caught up in that culture. Or we can retreat and we can complain and we can wring our hands and cross our fingers that things will change. Or we can live out a sincere and subversive faith marked by truth and love that engages the culture, empowered by the Spirit of God to do what? To patiently endure until the end comes soon. I like that phrase, patiently endure. John says in verse 9 of chapter 1 that I am a companion with you in this suffering. I'm a partner with you in this patient endurance. That's a good word. Patient endurance. That's how we live. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, patiently enduring whatever happens in this world, knowing that it is temporary, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven that is eternal, and that every kingdom has a king, and our king is the Alpha and the Omega. He is, he was, he is to come. The choice is yours. There is a company called Vivos, and they sell their very unique product and service with this opening question, are you ready for the end of the world? And this company taps into people's fear and anxiety about things that are happening in our world, assuming that the end is near, very near. And they offer a solution. For a mere $35,000 per person, you can co-own a place in their secured, underground, impervious complexes. These complexes or pods are fully furnished, They will house communities from 50 to 1,000 people, and they have enough food and supplies to last at least a year. Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do after a year. You're on your own, I guess. I don't know, but at least for a year, you have that. Their website warns that millions will perish, or worse yet, will struggle to survive. But they make this promise. We are your solution to ride out these catastrophes. 
so you might survive to be part of the next Genesis. And then they say, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. (laughs) Some of you are like, man, I need to take down that website. That looks kind of interesting there, right? Hey, I'll sell you a car for much less that you can bury in your backyard and put a bunch of cans of beanie weenies in if you want to, okay? We can work out a deal. Here's their question. Here's their tagline. You ready? Here it is. Which side of the door do you want to be on? (laughs) Which side of the door do you want to be on? You talk about tapping into fear and anxiety. Which side of the door do you want to be on? You know, there's a better way. There's a better way to make sure that you survive whatever happens in this temporal world. Choose to be with the Alpha and the Omega. The question isn't which side of the door do you want to be on, it's whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be with Jesus, the one who is everlasting, the one who is alive, or do you want to be away from Jesus, on your own, surrounded by the things of the world that you think will make you comfortable or will make you survive or make you feel whatever you think you need to feel in this world is that really what you want to do things that will not last hey if you want to live underground for a year go for it but then what well we'll learn how to grow our own crops okay then what well we'll, okay then what (laughs) you see it's temporary It's not going to last. This world is not our home. There's something better. We are part of the kingdom of heaven, and our king is the king of all kings. So the question remains, whose side are you going to be on? Whose side? Maybe today you need to make that decision, and you need to say, I'm with Jesus. I know he wins. I want to be on the winning side. I'm with Jesus. Confessing your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, being baptized into Christ, coming out of the water, a new creation, clothed with Christ, according to Galatians. And we would be glad to celebrate that with you today. We have some people who are making that decision today, and we find such joy in that. Maybe we can encourage you on your walk. You can go to our our website, our prayer page, reach out there. You can go to the parlor. It's a room right behind me in just a minute. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in there. They'll encourage you and pray for you. Or you can come down to the front and we'll lift you up in prayer today. We can help you. If we can do anything for you today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing now. There's a fountain.